Hi, everyone, and welcome to the premier episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. I'm your host, Greg Layson, the digital and mobile editor here at Automotive News Canada. Our first guest on ANC Conversations could very well be one of the hardest working men in the Canadian auto industry today. He was an influential driving force when it came to the renegotiation of NAFTA, working closely with politicians and policymakers as they penned the new United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. He was also the first to realize our nation was, and I'm quoting here, on a war footing, end quote, in the fight against COVID-19. He's behind the Million Mask Challenge, which saw Canadian auto parts suppliers donate much-needed personal protective equipment to our nurses, doctors, and other first responders. And he's helped transform the auto supply chain into a medical supply chain during this pandemic. So we'll get the latest on how those efforts are proceeding and what lies ahead for the Canadian supply chain in this rapidly changing world when we talk with the head of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, Flavio Volpe. Flavio, thanks for uh, joining me on the show. I didn't think I really had a choice, Greg. <laughs> That's true. We were going to <laughs> pester you until you agreed to do so. so. Yeah, um, thanks well, for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, I don't think it's any secret how busy you've been over the last two months during this pandemic. Um, you've been a liaison between uh, suppliers and various levels of government in the effort to make everything from face shields to ventilators. Um, you've been working weekends. So I have to ask out of the gate, what has this experience been like for you and your members over the last two months? You know, it's been an, it's been an interesting couple months watching the world shut down, but uh, uh, about a couple hundred, uh, sorry, a couple of dozen companies uh, working at uh, breakneck speed to get certified on product in an industry they've never been in before and getting that product rushed out the door in um, volumes that uh, were otherwise uh, unheard of in Canada, Um, chasing down, um, you know, an expected really deadly peak on a once in a lifetime pandemic. I mean, all that stuff sounds normal right now to all of us. It won't sound normal to our ears if you're listening to this two years from now. And um, it, uh, it, uh, you know, I'll let uh, others uh, weigh in on what that means, you know, what the long-term legacy of that is. I'll tell you the one thing I would like everybody to remember from this effort, uh, uh, from all these companies and my team here, is there's a real dignity in making things, and I think we forgot that. Uh, you know, maybe not maybe not the listeners for Automotive News Canada, but uh, the population writ large, I think, has forgotten how important it is to make things and have things in your hands when you need them. And uh, if uh, nothing else happens, nothing else shifted over the last couple of months uh, that's lasting, uh, it's that uh, it's the importance and the value of having a strong manufacturing cluster in your own jurisdiction. So let, let's stay there for a minute then. Um, we saw the supply chain break down on the automotive side, putting a few kinks in North American production based on parts that come from overseas. And then yeah. I've talked to suppliers who have said, we're making medical parts because the medical supply chain broke down overseas. Um, yeah. Have we been uh, enlightened to the fact that we outsourced too much over the, say, last 25 years or so? 
or was this just going to happen anyway? I just wonder if we've sent too much overseas and if we get any of that back, be it automotive or medical supplies built by your members. You know, the public sector, um, public sector procurement is driven by price. And I think that there needs to be a different inflection there. And I think we've all been served the lesson here that it's okay to um, find the cheapest source for the for the plastic takeout containers for your Mexican food, but it's not okay to save uh, 10, 20 cents on uh, on surgical masks, for example. Uh, for for the for private sector procurement, I think uh, you know both from the automakers and jurisdictions that source from China, just to single out one important region, uh, who have learned the lesson about, um, yeah, you can have a force majeure that'll make that a really big problem, both in terms of actually acquiring the goods and, and where your price points are, but also for China. You know, China China got hit with this first, and 100% of their uh, domestic production goes to domestic consumers, and those consumers uh, disappeared, I think, month over month with something like a 90% drop in February. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I also expect Chinese automakers to learn some lessons from this. And we're all going to be seeing, you know, once the industry uh, comes back up, we're going to see uh, Chinese automakers exporting for the first time in history to real markets, um, North America, Western Europe. And we're going to see, uh, aided by the push of uh, higher regional value content in the new USMCA, uh, a whole bunch of reshoring from China where possible. In the end, there are things like, where are you going to get your sensors if you don't buy them from China? You know, we we need China, we need Vietnam, Malaysia, a few of the other places to make uh, cost-competitive vehicles around the world. But I think the trend of globalization of the last 25 years, it started with the Maastricht Treaty and the original NAFTA is, is going to shift the other way. When you mention... China ready to export to North America. What does that mean then for your members in the Canadian supply chain? Well, anytime there's a new entrant uh, with horsepower, you know, the first thing people uh, are concerned with, and they and they should be, is loss of market share. Uh, and um, uh, you know, you if we take the lessons of history, you know, in the early '80s when uh, the Japanese entrants. Uh, we're um, we're taking market share from the American companies in uh, uh, in Canada and the U.S. You know the Canadian government said, "Oh well, we're, every vehicle that comes from Japan will get unloaded at the port of Vancouver, and we will inspect each one of them um, individually before they can be delivered to a lot." Slowed everything down, you know, uh, created a bottleneck that frustrated the Japanese, but also bought some time for the local uh, the local automakers. I'm suggesting that we've probably learned from that and that the best strategy is, okay, look, if they're eventually, if they're going to sell here, they're going to sell in quantities that make it worth not shipping across the Pacific. Well, that then means they're going to make here. And so, so there will be winners or losers, but a jurisdiction that chases the, the assembly investment, the suppliers in that jurisdiction, you know, whether, whether they're, they're headquartered in Canada or otherwise, if that assembly lands in Canada, uh, Canadian-based supply will uh, will benefit. So, so it's just the realities of the business. Um, I fully expect to see uh, Chinese new energy vehicles, as they call them, 
make a serious effort for distribution and then uh, and then real market penetration here in the next uh, three to five years. That leads into a question I wanted to ask about USMCA, uh, new vehicles, EVs, greener vehicles, however you want to categorize those. We yeah. know that USMCA has been updated. You were part of that um, sort of advisement to the uh, federal government in trying to pen that new deal. Yep. In that new deal, we know content goes up to 75% has to be made here in North America. But we also know that there have been more components added to that list, which was about, you know, 25 when it was first put into place in 1994. What specifically of those new components can your suppliers and your members take advantage of? And what are some of the surprising things in there that people might not know have been added? Um, Because let's face it, CD players and AM, FM cassette players the radio has changed and it's essentially a roving computer now. So what right. in Canada can your members capitalize on if in fact we start making those new green, new energy vehicles? Uh, Canadian based suppliers. And I'm using that as a distinction from Canadian headquartered suppliers sure. uh, can make everything uh, in that vehicle. In fact, that that's one of the, the driving theses behind our launching of the Project Arrow and in all Canadian zero emissions concept vehicle. We think that everybody who's invested here, wherever they're headquartered, could, could help contribute to that. Um, but it also goes the same in the U.S. And uh, when I think about Canadian suppliers and I think about a company like Magna, you know, with all the assets it has around the world and all the different parts categories um, that it does, uh, you know, the the USMCA is an opportunity for all for in every single part category um for uh, Canadian based uh industry to bid on is it going to win a bid for windows and seatbelts probably not but you know some of the surprises that you alluded to you know right now there is a sliding scale for the the regional content in uh, different parts categories they go from 65 to 75 percent the ones at 75 are the core parts core parts include everything you think it might you know engine transmission um major structural components but in it is also batteries and we all know you know your listeners will know that we don't make batteries at any volume here competitively um but we do have the battery technology everything around the chemistry that's very competitive and if you want to make a car tariff-free in, in, uh, for tariff-free sale in North America, your core parts, that basket of seven parts categories, has to average 75% locally or 75% in each, in each silo. And I think that it, there's a direct line between that and uh, the General Motors uh, um, announcement that just before the crisis that I think everybody's forgetting um, to make batteries in, in Lordstown. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it would never have happened if it wasn't for uh, the requirements of the USMCA. You know, you can't, you can't, you you can massage a performa, especially when there's a when there's a um, sizable tariff penalty uh, if you don't make it. Uh, but I think that what we're going to see is is uh, the OEM community in North America um, default to action on complying with uh, USMCA, and we're going to see a lot of that investment, uh, like the General Motors one in uh, in Ohio, um, uh, throughout the community in North America. We're talking a lot about what the future 
may or may not hold. Um, but how foggy and cloudy has COVID-19 made that future and even the future of enforcement of USMCA moving forward? It must be more difficult than expected to navigate this year in terms of trade and content and, and meeting those requirements. I think the idea that you could enforce a brand new a brand new set of rules of origin on July 1st when we don't even have the uniform regulations in our hands, uh, laughable. Especially when the, when the industry that's got to um, uh, prove compliance uh, until the last couple of days has been sitting idle. And we've got lots of other general, generational issues that would make compliance, I think, impossible. So if you turn on enforcement, which I have always described as distinct from entry into force. Yeah, entry into force means July the 1st, USMCA becomes law in all three countries, but you don't have to enforce the law True. until January 1st. If you try to do it before, all you're going to do is make sure that everybody pays the 2.5% tariff, because I assure you no one will make it. Well, how did we get here? I'm not a political expert. I don't study the, the process of this, and obviously it's difficult when you're dealing with three different countries, three different governments, two different languages. Um, all sorts of supply chains. But how did we get to this point where it seemed like everyone was on board and it seemed like this was going to be a seamless transition? And yet here we are where you're saying, you know, we've got to put this off for another six months. How did we get to this point? What went wrong? Well, it was expectation of the industry in all three countries and in all uh, in all spots on that, on that uh, supply chain uh, that uh, we would be seeing the first day of transition as the first day of the next year. That's what we had negotiated. And then when we came up with the implementing legislation uh, clauses that said, okay, look, it's the, it'll be the first month of the third day after the third country ratifies, uh, we started to see, wow, that could mean middle of the year. We warned for the longest time that it would be impossible to guarantee that we were going to comply that quickly. Um, just extend it to July 1st. And, the answer, mostly from Washington, uh, in fairness to Ottawa and Mexico City, was uh, we don't care. We have our instructions, and we're going to finish the uniform regs and hand them to you. Well, we didn't finish the uniform regs, and then the world fell apart. And now there's some suggestion we'll see the uniform regs on June the 1st. Well, if I have to reconfigure the supply chain for um, my um, full-size pickup line, and I got my uniform regs on June 1st. I'm not switching suppliers to make sure that I get the 75% by July 1st. Mm-hmm. I may not even be able to do it by January 1st. And to be honest, the same, com- same three countries led by USTR in Washington have said, oh, you can have an alternative staging plan. If you, if you give us all of your supply plans, you can uh, petition us for another five years extension to meet the new rules. And so when you put all of those things together, it really doesn't reconcile to any credible enforcement on July the 1st, especially if I've asked for an alternative staging plan. Um, it, um, it's typical of this NAFTA renegotiation process. It was a renegotiation that nobody asked for in, um, in a trade agreement that worked for uh, all three countries, especially uh, in this sector. And uh, it was rushed uh, it was clumsy. Uh, the, uh, um, the the Trump administration on automotive rules 
proposed and counterproposed itself twice without any counterproposal from Canada and Mexico. And um, and we're here. Someone I keep saying someone's going to write the history book. I'll write it, and it will be it'll it'll look like uh, the Pink Panther in uh, in some ways. And uh, we are where we are. You've been. I mean, let's face it. In terms of automotive history, you've been in the thick of it now for uh, (laughs) almost four years. Um, Yeah. No, six. Six. Oh, you mean in, in terms of this, in terms of the trade yeah, in terms of NAFTA yeah. and now pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah, seems sure. like an endless onslaught of historic events um, yeah. coming down on the auto industry. And we're in the middle yeah. of one right now. And you mentioned change. Um, yeah. I'm curious, what changes are being made on your members' shop floors yeah. to keep those employees safe, to keep the plants rolling, and to comply with... And they're not laws, really. They're, they're health and safety guidelines. So what is sure. being done... Um, and how difficult is it, I guess, for the smaller suppliers? I think Magnas and Linamars of the world um, could comply, I don't want to say easily, and the automakers can comply. We know GM and FCA have made changes, and so has Ford. Yeah, sure, sure. But, but what about your suppliers? There's been an extraordinary effort uh, across three countries, and then uh, uh, starting in some uh, cases at the OEM level, and then in many other cases at the Tier 1 level, like uh, I used, for example, I saw... Uh, GM made their playbook, uh, their COVID return playbook available, same with Ford. But um, but also, uh, you know, Lear uh, was one of the first out there uh, to share it. Um, um, and uh, in Canada, we have the Canadian Automotive Partnership Council, uh, led by Magna, Linamar, Martin Rea, Woodbridge, that have all been sharing those best practices. We, we, we all have a stake in avoiding a W return. Mm-hmm. And so part of that is, um, showing everybody what it means to protect um, what it means to protect employees. What we've done here at APMA is we've shared um, all of the materials uh, that we've been able to to curate from uh, from uh, OEMs and tier ones, and also uh, launching on uh, Tuesday uh, some uh, um, online based COVID back to work modules, both for employers. And employees, here's what's what's happening in general on every shop floor. It's we're an industry that's decades into um, uh, health and safety guidelines that show employees where they can and can't be at different uh, uh, times and different places of the process. Um, social distancing is not new to us, and or to the culture of the shop floor. And so, uh, you know, if you do any tour, you're walking inside of the yellow lines. And the yellow lines will just be there in different places. Where we can put the proper distance between employees, we will. Where we can't, we're going to uh, equip them with um, with uh, uh, the tools to, to to mitigate the spread, whether that's PPE or, or putting uh, plexiglass uh, between uh, employees where possible. Um, the you know that mixed with screening on the way in. Uh, uh, education of employees, uh, an open uh, relationship between management and employees on uh, whether you develop symptoms, um, contact tracing in some cases within a plant. I mean, I think everybody's got the same concerns over privacy and contact tracing, electronic contact tracing, but it's probably a good idea inside a plant if you can, if you have the technology to do so, that when people are at work in the, in your facility, to be able to, to track either either in an active or a passive sense who's where, 
you know, in case there is an outbreak. Um, but it's incumbent on all of the employers uh, to not only enact these, which uh, we we help to, at least here in Canada, uh, we spent a lot of time with the federal and provincial governments, both in uh, Ontario and Quebec, on what we were, you know, our best practices on, on safe workplaces. And the Ministry of Labour in Ontario put out a manufacturing safe workplace guidelines that um, looked a lot like ours uh, because we work together. Um, but, you know, it's not just a comment on doing that. We also have to spend the time as we bring everybody back to work to educate them on what their responsibilities are and make them understand what we've done for them so they can ask questions and feel safer and try to restore as much normalcy as possible. How much does all this cost and does it make Canada any less competitive or is it the same cost for everyone in every jurisdiction to make these places safer? I just wonder if you could put a price tag on it. Well, it's all less than 1% to be honest. And, um, Everybody's got to do it. And, uh, you know, if I did risk analysis, trying to save that 1%, but having an outbreak that shuts you down, uh, never mind the cost of whether you lose that customer or not, or the cost of being down for a while, the cost of losing your employees' trust and having them look around in an industry that still has a labor shortage is very high. So, so you're doing it, and you're doing it gladly. Um, let me ask you this. What is the single most important thing that has to happen to get us back to full production? And part two, when do you foresee us back to full production in the North American uh, auto industry? I think this comes down to consumer confidence, uh, Greg. You know, it's important to note that the sector didn't shut down because of outbreaks in workplaces, although there certainly were some. They shut down because the, the market collapsed and... Uh, it gave uh, everybody pause for thought, saying, oh, look, if the market's going to collapse, we could shut down and reconfigure our workplaces. We said initially, the initial reports were, as, well, we're in close for six days or 14 days or 30 days. Well, we're eight weeks in now. Most important thing to happen is that that market returns and market confidence returns. We've been out in the field doing uh, some polling that will be released next week. Uh, we'll share it with you. Uh, that, 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 uh, is studying what consumers, how are consumers feeling about major expenses, houses, cars, uh, that type of thing. Uh, are they anxious about their job prospects? Are they anx- anxious separately from the economy? And then, um, you know, what's the delta between the two? We saw the SAR uh, collapse in April to um, about half of where it was, mm-hmm. uh, maybe about uh, 55% of where it was. We're also want, looking at it uh, getting back to around 12 and a quarter as we reemerge. We think, um, w- you know, if, if consumers can be convinced that this is a sustainable return, then we're looking at uh, 100% return in the fall. And yes, our annual uh, production output is going to be material lower, materially lower sure. for 2020. Uh, but I think that the, the SAR might return to its normal path by first quarter of next year. All right, and I have to ask this. I think we should be asking everyone this. This has been an unprecedented time. Um, Families have been locked up together. People have been out of work. Personally, how are you doing and how are you dealing with this pandemic and and the shutdown and and um, just the uncertainty of it all? Well, you know, I got three teenaged kids, all high school aged, and um, 
on one hand they're 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 pretty self uh, sufficient on the other hand uh give them enough time they'll burn the house down <laughs> yes and, and one thing for them that's i think the same for a lot of us uh, the rest of us is is the uncertainty of a restart in ontario we don't know whether we're going to go back to school my bet is that we're not and uh very difficult to be a productive student uh when you're waiting and waiting and waiting especially if you if you especially if you're a 15 year old boy and would rather be uh playing on your PS4 or hitting baseballs sure. than uh than being in class but everybody's healthy we've been able to we've been you know i think uh there's a lot of merit to some of the actions uh, the 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 gross actions that we've taken here as a jurisdiction and really as the the country as well so, we we saw the predictions on the science. Uh, I know the further we get out from this, there'll be people who say, well, we got it all wrong and it was very safe. And Yeah, well, you know what? I don't mind that we got it. If, if, if we did too much and everybody was safe, uh, I'm willing to accept that risk and cost and what it's going to cost us to recover over the next few years. Uh, you know, I know, I know six people who should be with us who are not. Uh, because they were infected, and the long-term care home right next door to the office uh, lost 40 people. Um, COVID-19 threat is is real. Will continue to be real, and uh, you know we'll we'll get through this in five, ten, fifteen years from now. Uh, you know when my kids and your kids are uh, interviewing each other on the phone, Greg. Um, we we may laugh about it like we did uh, Y2K, though I don't think so, but. I was on the Y2, the federal Y2K task force in my first job out of uh, university, and uh, and I know we joke about it now, but uh, but we spent fifteen billion dollars as a jurisdiction to make sure we didn't have a problem. That so, was a real fear. That was, was a, a real fear. fear by by many many corporations and many many levels of government. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hope we get through it. I hope we get through it sooner rather than later. Um, and I know that you and your members are going to continue doing what they can during um, this pandemic until it subsides. And who knows, maybe it's a small percentage of new business in some of um, your members' uh, companies. Um, yeah. But we'll see. That is yet to be determined. Uh, Flavio, thanks for joining me on our very first uh, Automotive News Canada Conversations. It's appreciated, It's appreciated, and um, you're always a great chat, so uh, I thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Thank you for, for coming to us uh, as often as you do. Okay. Thanks, Flavio. Okay. We reached Flavio in his office in Etobicoke, Ontario, just outside Toronto. And that does it for the first episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. We hope you join us next time. So long, everybody.